In all sincerity, the first sentence of my sermon this morning was written Monday this past week before I was aware of having any challenge, and that is, this morning you're getting two sermons for the price of one. This is the Sunday when that was a sign. That's one of the reasons I wanted to make sure I was able to do that this morning. This morning you're getting two sermons for the price of one, and, and breathe easy, it's going to be in the time frame of one sermon as well. We're not just going to back two up against each other. The last time I did this, just a few weeks ago, we called it a lengthy introduction, and the introduction was about 60% of the, ser- of the sermon. And uh, So this one really isn't even an introduction. It's a follow-up on last week, but something that Paul has addressed over and over again through his letter to the Romans, and it's a particularly relevant subject to us today, relationship with Israel and an understanding of how Israel and the land work together under the new covenant. But I wanted to just take a few moments and expand on something I said a bit more briefly last week. Our first sermon here then picks up on the theme that we introduced a week ago, reflecting on the war between Israel and Hamas. I made the statement that According to God's own word, Israel is entitled to the land only as they obey him. According to God's own word, Israel is entitled to the land only as they obey him, as they walk according to his covenant requirements. That can be challenging for us to understand, and it's something that we're all wrestling with these days as we figure out even how to pray for the situation in Israel, present day, but also looking ahead wondering how, as faithful Christians, we intercede on this subject. So it can be challenging to understand, especially as we read God's promises to his people, though, and hear them as unconditional. Romans eleven twenty nine: 29, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. We've, we've studied that passage together. So we have to ask the question, which is it? If God's promises to his people are unconditional how is it that they have to meet certain conditions in order to remain in its blessings that's a key question that confuses many as they study the scriptures are God's promises unconditional or conditional and depending on the subject or depending on the the, uh, passage you look at either one of those can be true that's why I would say which is true Are God's promises unconditional or are they conditional? The answer is yes. And the answer is yes without waffling in the slightest. Scripture itself untangles this knot for us. When God makes promises, Genesis 12, 2 Samuel 7, to a couple of familiar ones, his promise to Abraham, his promise to David, and when he tells his people that he will keep those promises eternally, He means it. And he will never break his word. God said in Genesis 17, verse 8, I will give you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings for an everlasting possession. Yet just a few verses later, God declares again, that his covenant can be broken. God said to Abraham, Genesis 17, verse 14, 
Any male who is not circumcised shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. That's in the same chapter. God's covenant with Abraham is unbreakable, but we have to say that it is unbreakable from his side. He will keep his promises. But his people must obey him in order to continue in that covenant, to continue enjoying its blessings. That's clearly what God is saying to Abraham when he makes him this promise and when he gives warnings. And that is throughout the Old Testament law, the first five books of the Bible, and continuing on through the Old Testament in its different sections. We might say it's breakable from the human side, just reflecting on Genesis 17, 14. So for God's people, it is conditional in that sense. God obligated himself to keeping the covenant, and he obligated his people to walking in obedience. If they do, they're part of that covenant. If they don't, they pass themselves off from it. You remember in Genesis 15, as the animals were divided and as the covenant was being literally cut, God alone passed through the animals. God alone obligated himself to this covenant. And then he taught his people how it worked. Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 to 14, spells out the conditions of these blessings in great detail. All the blessings that Israel would enjoy, quote, if they keep the commandments of the Lord their God and walk in his ways. Deuteronomy 28, verse 9. But Deuteronomy 28 goes on, a lengthy chapter, to give in far greater detail the curses of the covenant. What they will lose if they will not obey the voice of the Lord their God. And what Moses lays out in that text is that they'll lose all the blessings they've gained and more. Verse 63 of Deuteronomy 28. You shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. That's precisely what happened in two stages. First, the northern kingdoms and the ten tribes that were dispersed among the nations and never returned. But then later, the southern two tribes, the southern kingdom of Judah, and they were brought back into the land. Fallen human beings just can't walk in the ways of God in their own strength. And that's what the Old Testament testimony is proving to us. God can do all the things that God did for Israel, and yet, in our own strength, we can't keep that covenant. We can't walk according to the Word of God. We can't meet the standard that He sets, especially when we understand the standard with the clarity with which Jesus presented it in the Sermon on the Mount. Not raising the bar on the expectation of obedience, but just clarifying what the original call was all about. Here's what it looks like. This is supposed to govern, this standard is supposed to govern not just your actions, but your thoughts and your feelings. So Jesus was unpacking in that sermon. 
Neither kings nor priests nor prophets could either guide or keep God's people walking in his ways. So we might say from a slightly different angle on this subject, even if God was faithful to his promises, how could he know there would be anyone to enjoy his blessings? Unless he takes matters into his own hands. His people, proven throughout the story of Israel in the Old Testament, just needed a new start. In fact, more than that, they needed a new heart. That yearned for good. A heart that yearned for him. Because the heart that they had couldn't keep them in the covenant. And even if they did get a new heart that yearned for him, they'd still need forgiveness and cleansing for the sins that they had already committed. Someone to absorb God's just wrath against those sins so that the perfection of God's holiness could be maintained even as they were restored into covenant relationship with him. So even if they got a new heart, they still had a past problem that had to get taken care of. What Israel needed was a miracle. Because a miracle is something impossible that has become possible because God is involved, because God can do it. Israel needed a miracle. They needed a new heart that yearned after him, but they needed something that could clean up the problem that already existed. And that's exactly, precisely, what God provided in the new covenant that he promised to them. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. What he promised is that he would not leave them scattered among the nations, profaning his name by their disobedience and their defeat. Rather, as he said through the prophet Ezekiel, Beginning in verse 23, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations and the nations will know that I am the Lord. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. God says to Ezekiel as he's making this promise to Israel again in Ezekiel 36, 24, Continuing on with a passage that I am confident is standing behind Jesus' engagement with Nicodemus in John 3. It's what he's appealing to, where God says through Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jeremiah added on this theme, I will put my law within you. I will write it on your hearts. Back to Ezekiel 36. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I shall be your God. He will keep his promises but his children will obey him or they will not enjoy his blessings putting this all together then 
The covenant promises of God are certain and irrevocable. But the only way he could ensure that there'd actually be someone to receive them was to accomplish a sovereign, saving work himself on their behalf. They needed, in the language of Romans, a propitiation that they could receive by faith rather than qualifying for his blessings by their own obedience. That just wasn't going to work. It would never happen. They needed God's intervention, and that's exactly what Romans is about. That's the story Paul's been telling in Romans from the very beginning, how God's people, remember chapter 3, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. Remember that two-part propitiation, separation of our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, and an absorbing of God's wrath against the sins that we had already committed. A resolution to the problem that was absolutely inconceivable from the human side. Jew and Gentile alike are to receive this propitiation, saved by one and the same means. Jew and Gentile alike, reconciled to God by one and the same Savior. And together they will receive the benefits and blessings of the covenant promises of God, the covenant that he has established with them. That's why it's so important what we've seen in these last couple of weeks that Paul is laboring to make sure that we understand that the Gentiles were included from the very beginning in that covenant. When the, that, that salvation then, the salvation promised by God is fully and finally delivered, Israel will be in the land for all eternity in fulfillment of God's promises. They'll be in the new heavens and the new earth where they'll never be threatened again by an enemy. They'll be in a literal, physical Glorious, unending fulfillment of all the promises that God has made to them. And they'll be under a righteous and holy king who will rule from the throne of his father David forever. Oftentimes we hear about Christ in the Old Testament as being named David. We heard it this morning in Ezekiel 36. That's the promise. Great David's greater son, who will occupy his throne forever. And those who believe from the nations, and there will be some from every tribe and language and people, those who believe from among the nations will be gathered under Jesus' reign along with Israel, no dividing wall of separation between them, nothing separating them any longer, but one new man for all eternity, one new man in Christ just as it was always intended to be from that first promise given to Abraham. Bottom line then, just because there may be long seasons of time in this fallen world where it appears as though, appears as though God's promises aren't being kept, Israel not in the land from 
A.D. 70 until 1948, and even for several hundred years prior to A.D. 70, in the land but occupied by other forces. Even though it can seem like God's promises are not being kept for long periods in this fallen world, that doesn't compromise the plan and purpose of God or call into question in any way or on any level whether he will keep his promises to his people. God himself sent his people into exile, away from the land. Sent them into Babylon. God removed them from the land. It's part of keeping his word. They would obey him, or they forfeit the, the privilege of the possession of the blessings of the covenant. But even though God himself sent them into Babylon, that didn't break his promises to them. Even when they returned and still didn't honor him with their whole heart, that still didn't break his promises to them. Read through Malachi. Our Lady's Bible study is doing that. Just headed into Malachi. Israel got back into the land. Their heart still wasn't for God. He's still being patient with his people. But he will not break his promises, even though at times it can look like he has. In a similar way, Israel was brought back into the land in 1948 in a, a dramatic and historic turn of political events. Fascinating to read about how that whole decision was made and what it cost different parties to make that call. And that had to have been enabled by God's sovereign hand. We're trying, not trying to remove God from that. God is sovereign over the, all the affairs of world history. It's not insignificant that that happened. But remarkable as it was and is, what happened in 1948 was not what Ezekiel wrote about that we read just a few moments ago from Ezekiel 36 as part of the New Covenant. It's not what Paul describes here in Romans 11 because Israel has not returned to God in repentance for all her sins. She's not living according to the covenant yet. In fact, despite those stunning developments that put ethnic Israel back in the land after nearly two millennia and just, just three years after World War II, and despite her able military defense of that land on several notable occasions since then, by and large, Israel still views her struggle and her suffering during all those centuries as resulting from God's unfaithfulness to her, not her unfaithfulness to him. Thus, Israel remains opposed to the gospel of the new covenant that God has provided in Christ. She remains opposed to it, with many even denying his very existence. Ask Eitan and Ari Kashtan what it takes just to produce and distribute Christian literature in Israel today. All of the opposition that continually comes. That's not pleasing to God. That's not God's people living under God's promised blessing. 
God is still proving himself true, but his people haven't yet embraced the covenant relationship that he's offered. Now, that, that hellish season of the Holocaust has not driven Israel back to repentance and faith in God. And returning to the land didn't cause her to drop to her knees in worship and praise that the word of God is once again proving true. Rather, it just convinced her that she's on her own to pursue her own best interests and to defend herself from harm. That's the attitude of Israel today. We need to understand that from a biblical perspective. So I don't believe that we're seeing any great end times indicators in Israel just yet. I personally still believe we are firmly ensconced in the days of the remnant that Paul talks about back in chapter 11, verse 5. We're still awaiting Israel's blindness to be removed, that partial hardening that Paul mentions in verse 25 remains, I believe. So we pray for her. We pray for the day of her awakening. And then the return of her promised Messiah, which, is that, which that is indicating. And we long for that day with great hope and great expectation as the day of salvation for all who believe who've all who've been blessed by God to embrace by faith the Messiah promised through Israel that will be the fulfillment ultimately of all that he promised to her and all of the blessing that he promised to the nations through her. To be clear then, God's people will be in the land for all eternity with Christ forever on the throne of David God's promises are true and they will never prove false or unreliable. But his people will only enjoy these covenant blessings on his terms, never on their own. And if they refuse his terms, they cut themselves off from his promised covenant blessings forever, both Jew and Gentile alike, just as God said through and to Abraham way back in Genesis about the one who doesn't submit to the sign of the covenant. That is still true today. And that's a scenario quickly painted of what we're looking at in that area of the world and how I believe we can think most biblically about it. So that's sermon number one for today. And Paul's text that was just read by Pastor Nick is... Sermon number two, and I forgot to mention to you at the beginning, the outline that is in your bulletin applies only to sermon number two this morning. So if you've been looking for where I am on that outline, uh, sorry for not mentioning that sooner. Let's look at this text of Romans 15, though, verses 14 through 33. Much bigger chunk than we've been handling throughout this series, but as we said, last week we finished the instruction portion of Paul's letter and from that point on, it's, it's much personal greetings and personal plans, points of connection between him and this Roman church that, um, that show that they are one, even though they haven't met each other yet. 
But here we see in this progression, first of all, Paul's purpose and perspective in his writing. That's verses 14 to 21. Then Paul's purpose and plan in his travels. That's verses 22 to 29. And then Paul's appeals for prayer and for peace in verses 30 to 33. I'm just going to do some running commentary on these verses under those headings so we can appreciate what Paul is doing here. Look first at the purpose and perspective in his writing. This is, this is helpful, and we appreciate what he's saying and giving us here. Verse 14, Paul himself is satisfied about these Roman Christians that they are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to teach one another the truths of God's word. That's a profound statement from Paul about this church that he hasn't met. He's confident that the gospel has taken root among them. He's convinced that they're genuinely converted and walking by the Spirit, even though, verse 15, he says, on some points he wrote to them very boldly to root the gospel truth deeply in their minds, we might say, in summary of what he has stated there, because God in his grace has commissioned Paul to do just that. He's a minister to the Gentiles, and he wants to make sure that this congregation is thinking well and deeply about the Word of God and is anchored into the truth of God as the core of their fellowship as the church. Verse 16, this is God's calling. He's commissioned to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel so that the Gentiles will be fully ready for Christ's return, we might say, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul is doing the priestly service that enables these folks to present their bodies as a living sacrifice. He's facilitating the sacrificial offering, which is the praise and glory of God exhibited in the life of the believer. We've been seeing these themes since chapter 12 began in the applicational section of this letter and now Paul refers to his responsibility here as, as a priestly service to the gospel with a glorious picture and imagery that that brings up about who we are as believers and how we go about loving and serving the God who has reached out and made covenant relationship with us. And I love the fact that Paul says, and we'll come back to this in a few moments as well, verse 17 here, in Christ Jesus, I have reason to be proud of my work. It's a sweet statement that helps us hear and understand and unpack how it is that our gospel service actually works. Paul says, I have reason to be proud of my work. Verse 18, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Think of Paul's testimony given in 2 Corinthians, given in Philippians, given in Galatians. Think of Paul's testimony. All of the things that he had to boast about. And he's saying, I can actually be proud of the work that I'm doing in Christ Jesus because it's God who's doing that work through me. And I recognize that. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. 
Let that sink in. That is a stunning admission. I am only interested in talking about, not to mention spotlighting, what God is accomplishing through me toward the fulfillment of his gospel work. As I said, I love that statement, and that's why we're going to come back to it in a few minutes. Paul can thoroughly enjoy his work here, though, even marvel at it. He can marvel at his own work without it being boastful because he's fully convinced that it's just God working through him, accomplishing the purpose of his calling, fulfilling his promises made to Paul on the very day that he stopped Paul on the road to Damascus and said, you're mine, and you're going to be a servant, taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And that service, he goes on to add in verse 19, we almost shouldn't separate it in the middle there, but that service is done by the power of signs and wonders. So Paul was, or what God was doing through Paul at the time, proving the authenticity, the legitimacy, the power of the gospel. And all of that done by the power of the Spirit. The power of the Spirit of God so that Paul can preach the gospel and see life-changing, eternity-altering results in those who receive it by faith from Jerusalem all the way around the Mediterranean basin to Illyricum, which is present-day Albania, that region. And that's why he's so determined to preach the gospel, not where it's already been preached, and so now the church is growing and spreading that gospel themselves. I think that's what he's talking about here. But once that happens, once the church is planted and it's, and it's starting to spread the gospel itself in its region... Paul has no interest in or need to build on that foundation. It's time for him to go break new ground. Let the church be the church in the region where it's already been planted. Then he quotes Isaiah 52, verse 15. That's a worthy text to take some time with. We won't do that this morning, but I do want to point out that that verse explains Paul's rationale. Isaiah 52, verse 15 is the final verse before Isaiah 53 begins. So it's the threshold of, of that great Old Testament description of God's saving work in Christ, Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 52 finishes a sequence. It's just after that image of the beautiful feet of those who preached the good news back in Isaiah 52, 7, and then moves up through to say that Paul's calling is to take the message of salvation to Gentiles who have never heard. He sees that declaration as descriptive of his own ministry. And because of that, this is the reason, Paul says in verse 22, moving on into his purpose and plans in his travels, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. He's been about this work. He's been taking the gospel to the Gentiles. It's the reason I've been hindered from coming to you. 
He's been spreading the gospel. But now, verse 23, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, the churches are taking it over. It's not meaning every single person in that region has become a believer. But the place has been seeded. It's been seeded with the gospel. And the church is growing up in that region. And the work continues on through them. And since he continues on in verse 23... I have longed for many years to come to you. Verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go on to Spain. That's where he's headed. The western end of the empire where surely the gospel has not yet reached by this time. I hope to see you in passing as I go on to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. It's as though Paul is saying right here, I want you to be my sending church on my mission to Spain. Verse 25, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem. The music should swell at this point and there should be some low-end brass and, and, and percussion. All right, I'm going to Jerusalem. Bum, bum, bum. That's how the story progressed. Do you remember Paul's return to Jerusalem from our study in Acts, Acts 20 and following? After his emotional meeting with the Ephesian elders in the latter part of Acts 20, then those warnings not to go that came from friends all along the way as he was headed to Jerusalem. And the chaos that did break loose when he arrived, Acts 21, 27 and following. He was arrested, but he still addressed the mob of protesters, Acts 21 and 22. Then he began that series of, of trials from the end of 22 all the way through 26. He began that series of trials during which he appealed to Caesar. Acts 25, 11. I shouldn't be tried in a Jewish court. I've done nothing wrong to the Jews. If I've done anything wrong, it's against Roman law. I appealed to Caesar. And he was told, to Caesar you will go. That's what happened when Paul got back to Jerusalem. All of that was awaiting him. At present, he writes here, Paul's only intent is to go to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints, he said. That's why he wanted to go back. Verse 26, for Macedonia and Achaia, the churches of Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, the churches of Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem, hard times in Jerusalem. Historians tell us there was famine, there was also the persecution of the early church, the great divide between Jews and Jewish non-believers and Jewish believers. I was pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For it's the gospel... For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of some service to them in material blessings. 
That sentence right there, folks, should bring most of Romans back to mind as you hear it. Paul is still, even in giving his plans and his purpose in writing and something about his travels, is still explaining why it is that Jew and Gentile stand equally in need of God for salvation, and yet there's still a priority to the Jews. Still explaining that. Still referencing the fact that these Gentile churches have much thanks and assistance to offer to the Jewish churches because it's through the Jews that their salvation has come to them. Still explaining those truths, still illustrating them, and showing how far it is that those truths ripple out into the life of the early church. It's how we get back in chapter 3, if you remember, the same question posed twice, eight verses apart, with an absolutely opposite answer each time. Is there any advantage in being a Jew? Much in every way. Is there any advantage in being a Jew? Not at all. Both of them are true. And we're seeing even now the priority of the Jews, the blessings, but then they stand in need of the very salvation that God has used them to deliver into this world. Verse 28, when therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them, to Jerusalem, what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. At least that's Paul's present plan, but in any case, he says in verse 29, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. And toward that end, then, Paul sought the prayers of the Roman church. Moving us into verse 30 through 33. Toward that end, Paul sought the prayers of the Roman church. I appeal to you, he says, verse 30, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Now, two requests. I'm asking you to strive together in prayer. This is calling for you to labor in prayer with Paul. This is a great concern on his heart, and he wants it to be a great concern on the heart of the Romans. This isn't just, hey, if you think about it, pray for me. This is Paul saying, guys, join me in this. Enter into this prayer with me. Request number one, verse 31, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. And he was, but I'm confident not in the ways that he was asking here. I am certain that's not what Paul had in mind, that he would survive imprisonment and beating and a plot against his life as he was being delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. But the fact is, he was delivered, and he made it to Rome. Still, I'm confident that's not the way he thought it was going to happen. What a lesson for us in our prayers, especially the prayers that we are laboring after. Don't give up quickly. The answer could look very different than you expect, even when the answer comes. Second request. And that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints that the Jewish opposition, we might say, the Jewish opposition to Paul might not impede his delivery of the offering to the church. 
We don't know how this request was answered. We don't know how the offering was received, but the net result of these two requests is that Paul does say in verse 32, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. We know that Paul got to Rome, but first as a prisoner. Acts 28, latter half of the chapter, records that. And we don't know whether he got to Spain. That's just not clear. Different traditions say different things there. Even so, I'm confident that he believed God had heard and answered him. Luke records in the last couple of verses of Acts, Paul lived there in Rome two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul, I believe, was satisfied that these requests had been answered even though much hardship had accompanied those answers. And I'm sure God answered his closing prayer here, verse 33, may the God of peace be with you all. And even if in your lives, Paul would say, you've had similar experiences to mine, to mine that does not mean that God won't be faithful to his promises to provide peace. God in this world provides the things that he promises, but not always in the way that we expect and not always according to the timetable that we would prefer. But let that, let that not ever lead us to the place where we believe that God is not being faithful to his promises. So what's our takeaway today? I believe a good one for both of our sermons today is expressed in Paul's own words that we said we'd return to, verse 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. For Paul, it was bringing, bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. But for each of us, it, it's something. It is something for each of us, even if it's not as grand and glorious and world-changing as it was for Paul. For all of us, it is something that God has purposed to work through us. It's taking us right back to chapter 12. Do you remember? Calling us to think of ourselves according to the measure of faith God has assigned. Do you remember looking at that text? Those gifts that differ according to the grace given to us which he's given to us, intending them to be used, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, for the common good. Paul is telling us once again here that this is indeed the way that we should be evaluating ourselves, tying off once again one of these themes from his letter. This is the way that we should be thinking of ourselves. It's the way he thinks of himself according to the measure of faith God has given in Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work, Paul says, because he knows with confidence that it's not his own achievement. It's done by the power of the Spirit of God. Verse 19, he knows why he's here. He knows what he's called to do. He knows that his highest calling, his, his greatest achievement, his very identity is tied into God's 
call in his life. To be what God has called them to be and to do what God has called them to do. He knows that. His very identity is the service of God. And therefore, he can enjoy immensely what God is doing through him and through those that he's associated with. He wraps the Romans into that, never having met them, but knowing what the gospel was accomplishing there. So my friends, our takeaway this morning is just a very similar question to what we posed last week. I wonder, do each of us know this? Do each of us know that our greatest calling is to be and to do what God has gifted and called us to do? It's so easy to get distracted to think that the secondary things, the places, the offices, the houses, the neighborhoods where God has called us to exercise those gifts, that those are actually the priority. And we just sort of bring something into that. But our primary identity is out there, the place where we serve and the gifts that we use to serve, rather than recognizing what you take into that region what you take into that area, what you take into that office, into that home, into that school. It's God's assignment for you. That's how you view yourself. It's how Paul viewed himself. Is that how we view ourselves? It's a question we should answer. Pray with me as we ask it. Heavenly Father, I do ask that you would drive that question deep into our hearts. Can we rejoice in what you are doing because we know that we're simply about doing the thing that you have called us to do? Being the person that you have called us to be thinking of ourselves first and foremost according to the measure of faith that you have granted and not according to the particular expression of gift that we most enjoy. Oh, Father, do that work in us, I pray. We so long to be a church who thinks of themselves according to the measure of faith you have supplied. So, Father, enable that it is a work of your spirit alone, as we can see. We have no ability to satisfy the requirements of your covenant in our own strength. So, Father, accomplish it. Do it for your glory, for our good, and for our increased enjoyment of you and of one another. In Jesus' name, amen.